Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So this morning, we're picking up with our series on uh, uh, Jesus in the Bible, and we're focusing for about 10 or 12 weeks on Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This morning, uh, this will be slightly different than a typical sermon where I try to um, build an argument with some points. Today, I just want to tell you a story, you know, a long story, but this story covers roughly 40 years in the Bible. Uh, This story covers about 10 chapters in the Bible. We're not going to read all 10 chapters. I've worked hard all week to get this down to the, you know, the high points, the essential parts of the story that we need to look at. But this morning, I'm just going to tell you a story. The reason that the Bible uses stories and the reason that the Bible is not just lists of commandments and doctrine is because the Bible... uh, wants people to remember and recall these stories. You know, this, this used to not all be written down in a book for us. It was all transmitted orally. They told stories. In fact, even though most of the book of Psalms is not stories, if you go to Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, every section of that psalm, it's, it's an acrostic. It's in alphabetical order. So the first section corresponds with uh, the Hebrew uh, letter Aleph, but what we would call A and then B and then C. That way, if you're memorizing it, you just have to remember, oh, I'm on the fourth line that starts with D, okay, D, and then you remember it. And so much of the Bible is written so that you can memorize it, or at least they could memorize it. We have it like this. So that's one of the reasons that the Bible uses stories, because stories are easier to remember. So we're going to look today at the story of Abraham, Isaac, and the ram from Genesis, starting in chapter 12, going through to chapter 22. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis 12. Uh, The high points or the significant uh, verses that we need, I'll have on the screen so that we can follow along with this story. But like any good story, this story has a setting, Stories always have settings. In some stories, the setting doesn't matter, but in other stories, the setting does matter. Every fairy tale starts with uh, once upon a time, right? And Star Wars starts with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Well, this story has a setting. Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. Abraham was born around the year 2166 BC. That's before Jesus, which means, as, as hard as this is to believe, Abraham was born even farther away from Jesus' birth than you or I are. Every single one of us that's in this room was born chronologically closer to the birth of Jesus than Abraham was. We're born roughly 2,000 years after Jesus, but Abraham was born roughly 2,200 years before Jesus. So if you ever read the Bible and think, oh, these Bible people, they had it so, they had it so easy because they lived at the time of Jesus. You live closer to the time of Jesus than Abraham did. As hard as that is to believe. So Abraham lived roughly 2,200 years, uh, sorry, 
4,000 years ago, around 2,200 he was born. Want to remind you, Abraham was not Jewish. He was not an Israelite. He was not a Hebrew because there was no such thing as Israel. His grandson is the one named Israel. So he was pre-Jewish, pre-Hebrew, pre-Israelite. Does that make sense? Abraham lived uh, in a time where the, uh, the setting and the, the context was that people were polytheistic, okay? So remember, I want you to remember there's no Moses yet. Moses is still 500 years away, at least. Uh, actually, more than 500. There's no prophets yet. There's no exile. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. All those things that you associate with the Old Testament. Guys, we're only 12 chapters into the book, we're very, very early on. The only things that have really happened so far, Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, and the Tower of Babel, and then Abraham. Not much has happened yet. We're very early in the story. So Abraham lived in this setting where the people were polytheistic. Uh, the word polytheistic just means they believed in many gods. Not one god, but there were lots of different gods. And uh, because of that, the gods would battle with one another, in their mind at least. The thought was the gods would battle with one another, fight with one another. Because there were, in their mind, many gods, those gods were tribal and territorial. Okay, so every tribe or every people or every family or every group had its own uh, god. And if you went onto their land or their property, they had a god of the, for instance, the Canaanites had a god named Molech, who I'll talk about later. But if you went into Canaan, they had a god. And if you went into Ammon, which is in modern-day northern Jordan, they had their god. And if you went to this place, they had their god. So whoever's borders you crossed, you had to pay respect to that god on that land in those borders. And not only, so that what, the, what that tells us is they did not believe in a God that was all present. They did not believe in a God that went with you or traveled with you, which is why when Moses prays, Lord, go with us, may your presence go with us, he's praying to a God that he believes can be everywhere. And so they didn't believe in an omnipresent God that was everywhere. Uh, these people uh, around Abraham believed in many gods that were tribal and territorial. Not only that, they did not believe in a God that was all-powerful or omnipotent. Every God had their little specialty. There was a God of war. There was a God of fertility. There was a God of the crops and the harvest. There was a God of the sun. There was a God of the moon. You get the idea. There were lots of different gods, and they all had a specific, uh, specified purpose or area that they had power over. If you're familiar with, like, the Greek Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, you know, Zeus and Medusa and Perseus and uh, who's the guy in the ocean? Uh, or, what's his name? Poseidon is one of them, Neptune. Yeah, there's a bunch of, right? They all have all these different gods and they all have a different job. There's the god of war, there's the god of wine, there's the god of this, there's the god of that. That's a little bit like what Abraham would have grown up seeing is all these people have their own gods who did different things. And hey, if you needed to get pregnant, you did a sacrifice to the fertility god. And if you needed your crops to do well, you did a sacrifice to the god of the, the harvest. And if you were going into battle, 
you made a sacrifice to the God of war. Does that make sense? So this is what Abraham would have grown up observing. This is what he would have seen in his travels. This is what he would have experienced. But as we look at this story today, we're going to find that the God that he worshipped, the God that he followed, whose name is Yahweh, is different from all the other gods. Now just to kind of put a finer point on this, the God of the Canaanites, and this is the land that God sends Abraham into, and I'm calling him Abraham today. He goes by Abram or Abraham, just for my own ease. I'm just going to go with Abraham today, okay? Everybody cool with that? And his wife was Sarai or Sarah. I'm just going to call her Sarah today. But Abraham, actually God sent him into the land of the Canaanites, and one of the Canaanite gods was a god named Molech, and I have a picture, an artist's rendition of Molech here. Now I've actually showed this picture on several occasions that explain this, but I want to explain it again today for those that are unfamiliar with Molech. Molech was a Canaanite god. Uh, He's not real, Uh, but they made this statue, and Molech was the god of child sacrifice. And it was common and customary for them to sacrifice one of their children, often the firstborn child, to Molech in order to guarantee that they could have a second kid and a third kid and a fourth kid and a fifth kid and so on and so forth. So this is an artist's rendition of a sacrifice to Molech. You can see seated there is a giant statue. This is a a metal statue probably made of bronze or something like that. Uh, of Molech, and at the base of his seat underneath him, you see the flames and the smoke. So what they would do is they would build a fire at the base of this metal statue, and the fire would heat up the statue, and the the metal would begin to glow. It would have this kind of like eerie, kind of supernatural-looking glow, like heated metal, and it would begin to glow. And this metal statue, you can see that his arms are out, and there's a priest, a priest of Molech there, who's placing an infant into his arms, and these arms are glowing metal, hot metal. And that was how they would sacrifice their children, as they would heat up this metal statue till it was glowing hot, place the children in it, and then I'm sure you can imagine the sound, right, the screaming of a child being burned alive. So they had an answer for that. If you look in the bottom right, they have these drummers. The bottom left has trumpeters who are banging on the drums and blowing the trumpets for one reason, to drown out the sounds of screaming children. So this is the God of the Canaanites, the land where God sent Abraham. He says, you're going into Canaan. One of the gods in Canaan is Molech. So it's, we don't know for sure, but potentially Abraham heard of, witnessed, observed new people who participated in this very thing. Now we're going to come back to that later. Now Abraham did not worship Molech. He was not a follower of Molech. Abram's god or Abraham's god was named Yahweh. Now Abraham was a descendant of Noah. Remember Noah in the ark? You guys know that's like how every, every veterinar- veterinarian is Noah's this and Noah's that, it seems like. So Abraham was 10 generations descended from Noah. Noah was Abraham's great, 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 great granddaddy. Okay? 
So 10 generations after Noah comes Abraham. Uh, Abraham, it's been passed down through his family that their God is named Yahweh. And here's what Abraham learns about Yahweh. Yahweh is not territorial. Yahweh is everywhere. Yahweh isn't just the God of war, the God of the harvest, the God of fertility. He's the God of everything. You know, you... You want, to have a, you want to have a baby? Talk to Yahweh. You going into battle? Still talk to Yahweh. You got a harvest coming? Yahweh. It's just one-stop shopping with Yahweh. You know? Like, and so, in fact, the name Yahweh is unique in that uh, in Hebrew, it's all like, kind of like what we would call vowels or breathing sounds. So, when you talk, you have, we have in our alphabet consonants and vowels. A consonant is usually uh, a, a letter where you have to close your mouth. So like the letter T, t, t I have to close my mouth t, to make that sound or j, j, my tongue has to hit the roof of my mouth the way I say it. Now, if you're from Philly, your accent makes no sense, but um, everything is beautiful. So... <laughs> go down to Wawa's, get a hoagie. So the consonants are where your mouth closes, but a vowel is the sound of breathing. Every vowel in our language is, is a breath sound. It's uh, uh, a, e, i, o, u. Your mouth is open for all of that. It's all breathing sounds. So Hebrew's a little different from English, if that's not obvious, but in Hebrew, Yahweh is all, it's uh in English, it would be Y-H-W-H is how you would spell Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It, for them, it's yod Hey vad Hey, and all of those letters are breathing sounds. So to say Yahweh is just to breathe. It, it's just Yahweh. It's, it's exhaling and inhaling. And so the name Yahweh was really like the sound of breath. When a baby's born, first thing it does is breathe and whisper Yahweh. And when you die, the last thing you do is take your last breath and say Yahweh. Now, Abraham worshiped Yahweh and he would have received the uh, instruction about Yahweh and the ways of Yahweh from Noah and 10 generations down. We pick up in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is 75 years old. He has not had any children yet. His wife is a spry, young 50-year-old, or uh, sorry, 65-year-old, so he's a cradle robber. He's got that young wife. And uh, Abraham has this experience with God where God promises Abraham a descendant. So this will be on the screen. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. This is the beginning of God's promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now I want to remind you, at this point, Abraham is 75 years old. He has not had a child yet. In the 10 generations between him and Noah, 
Almost every generation, the men were having children when they were 30, 35 years old, but now Abraham is 75 years old. He hasn't had a son or any children because his his wife, Sarah, it says, is barren. She's unable to have children. It says in Genesis 11.30, Sarah was barren. She had no child. So Abraham's 75 years old. He has no children, but God says, and this is the promise God makes him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, verse 2. And then in verse 3, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what is God doing telling a 75-year-old man who has no children, I'm going to make a great nation out of you? Out, through you or in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, Abraham was a man of faith. In fact, the New Testament calls Abraham the father of faith. And there's a lot in Abraham's life that carries over into the New Testament that tells us how to live as Christians. But Abraham believed that God was going to do this, but he didn't know exactly how God was going to do this. So time passes. In Genesis 15, Abraham has still not had any children. Nearly a a decade has passed. No No child yet. Imagine the difficulty. God has said that he's going to give you an heir, but you haven't had a kid, and it's been 10. Now you're in your 80s. I remember when my wife and I, when Kendra was pregnant the very first time, it was in 2008, and I think she got pregnant in 2007, but 2008, and we had a miscarriage. And after the miscarriage, it took us 20 months to get pregnant a second time. And I remember every month, 20 times, hoping we were pregnant and finding out that we weren't. And then even when we did find out that we were pregnant, the, the concern and the worry because we had lost the first baby. So, I mean, it wasn't until I was holding Aiden in my hands, and this is almost three years from the first pregnancy to Aiden's birth, It wasn't until I got to see him with my eyes and hold him in my arms that I was like, you know, like I just, every month in between that first miscarriage and getting pregnant with Aiden, 20 months, every month was get your hopes up and get them destroyed. Well, Abraham and Sarah went through this for a decade. And at some point, Abraham, I think, just resigns himself to the idea that When God said I was going to have an heir, he must have meant I'm going to give all my wealth to one of my household servants, my butler or my maid, one of the people that lives in the house. In Genesis 15, uh, God corrects Abraham, and God says no. In Genesis 15, 4, he says, this heir will be one who will come forth from your own body. Because Abraham was ready to give everything he owned to his, his, give his inheritance to his household servants, Eliezer of Damascus. That's a good hip-hop name, Eliezer of Damascus. It would confuse a lot of people. But God says, no, you're going to have an heir that's going to come from your own body. Okay, now I'm 85, maybe 86. You're saying that I'm going to have a child. okay. Let me talk to Sarah about that. She's in her mid-70s. Going to have to take her out for dinner. And Abraham, uh, after some time, still no child. Sarah is still barren. 
And Sarah decides to suggest to Abraham this insane idea. It was actually common at the time. It sounds crazy to us, and it should sound crazy to us. Genesis 16, 2. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go be with my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So Sarah says, Listen, this is just not working. We thought you were going to hand the inheritance off to one of our servants. God said, It's going to be your own biological child. I'm unable to give you a kid. I have this Egyptian maid. Why don't you sleep with her? Get her pregnant. You can have a son with her, and that'll be, that must be the way God wants us to do this. Really, they take matters into their own hands. Well, Abraham does that. He's 99. Uh, he's, he's in his mid-80s at this point. He does that. He gets Hagar pregnant. Hagar has a son named Ishmael. And for 13 years, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar and Ishmael live as Ishmael is Abraham's son, and he is Abraham's son. And it it seems like in Abraham's mind, Ishmael is the fulfillment of that promise that God made. This is the son that you said you were going to give me that's going to be a great nation, and uh, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through God. But in Genesis 17... God visits Abraham. So every time God shows up, Abraham misunderstands. In the waiting time, Abraham begins to get wrong ideas about God. And that happens to us. God says something to us, and we're, 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 we're good, excited. And then the waiting comes. And in the waiting, we begin to make these interpretations about, well, maybe God must have meant something different than what he said. Or maybe God wants me to take matters into my own hands and make this happen instead of trusting that the God who promised it would carry it out. In Genesis 17, God shows up when Abraham is 99 years old. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. This is just revisiting what God originally said. He's just reaffirming it. There's going to be nations that are descended from you. Well, skip down to verse 15 of chapter 17. God says to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Oh, we're still talking about Sarah? God, I have a 13-year-old with Hagar. He's about to start driving in three years. We're still talking about Sarah? So this is what Abraham says in verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. 
God, I'm 99. She's 90. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is, this is Abraham actually trying to make his situation fit into God's heart and fit into God's will. He's like not even willing to believe God anymore. He's like, well, can't you just like, can you adjust what you're doing to fit what I've done? It sounds like ridiculous, doesn't it? So don't try it this week, all right? It's ridiculous when we do it too. Abraham says to God that, oh, the Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant of his, for his descendants after him. So let me just review this story. God told Abraham when he was 75, I'm going to make you a great nation. He has no kids at this point. 10 years, 11 years go by, and he's like, all right, God must have meant, you know, like I'm going to just have, I'm going to have a large inheritance, and I'll just plan to give it away to like, you know, my, my best servant in my household. And God says, no, no, no. Not a servant, someone from your own body. More time goes by, still no kids. Abraham's wife get this, gets this ridiculous idea. Take my maid, sleep with her, get her pregnant. That'll be your heir that comes from your own body. Okay, I'll do that. Abraham does that. Gets Hagar pregnant, has Ishmael. 13 more years go by. And God says, okay, let me make this clear. You and your wife are going to have a kid. I'm going to just tell you the name, dude, because you will not figure this out. It's Isaac. Uh, God probably didn't say that. I think it's in the Hebrew. His name's going to be Isaac. That's the one I've been talking about. That's the son I've been promising. Isaac, stop taking things into your own hands. During the waiting time, stop misunderstanding. So, sure enough, Sarah does get pregnant when she's 90. She has this son. Actually, when she hears about it, she laughs. And the angel of the Lord happens to hear her laughing and says, you're laughing. And she's like, no, I wasn't. I'm not laughing. Who do we think we're dealing with here? And so uh, they have this child, Isaac. So now Ishmael has a stepbrother. Ishmael's 13 maybe when Isaac is born, 13 or 14. I will say, if you read the story, Hagar and her son Ishmael do get a raw deal because Sarah's like, I don't want this woman around and really, they, Sarah is like, I don't want, this is your, a, a, my husband's mistress and his you know, child, and I, I don't want them around. And they actually, she makes sure that Sarah and Hagar are kicked out. Uh, sorry, not Sarah. Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out. And God actually rescues them. They're not guilty. You know, they're, uh, and so God is faithful to them as well, but this situation is very messy. This is, by the way, Jesus' family. Not cookie cutter. Not perfect. Lots of just, 
messy situations here. So Isaac is born. Isaac grows up. We don't know how much time passes, but when we get to Genesis 22, this is kind of the the high point of the story here. We get to Genesis 22. We don't know how old Isaac is, but the word, he's referred to with the word lad in the passage, which probably means he's a preteen, like he's 12, maybe 13 years old himself. The same age that maybe Ishmael was when Isaac was born. He's old enough to have conversations with his dad. He's old enough to understand sacrifices. He's old enough to lug some stuff on his shoulders. So, you know, maybe, let's just picture someone that's approximately 12 years old. Maybe He's maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but as you look at the conversation they have in chapter 22, he, he's not a child, but he's also not a full-grown man. Let me start in Genesis chapter 22. I'm just going to tr- read almost the whole chapter here. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. God said, now take take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. If you read this story like me, you're like, huh? In verse 2, God says you're going to have to sacrifice your son, and in verse 3, you're on your way. He's not like, what? Why might Abraham accept this idea that you would have to sacrifice your child? That's what he saw on every other, from every other God. Remember Molech that I shared about earlier? I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm sure Abraham's heart is broken. But I got to think that when, when Yahweh said, hey, Abraham, you're going to have to sacrifice your son, probably something in Abraham's head was like, that makes sense. That's what all the other gods demand. That's how all the other peoples behave. And so he gets up the next morning. There's nothing in here that he questions God. He says he gets up early the next morning, saddles his donkey, took two young men with him, split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went on to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. So Abraham takes the wood that he's going to use to burn up his son's body. And he says, here, Isaac, you carry the wood. Isaac, of course, has no idea what's going on. He doesn't realize he's carrying the instrument of his own death. Right, So he's loaded up with wood. He's carrying it up a mountain to be killed by his father. You're picking up on the foreshadowing here. So the two of them walk on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. 
Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah-Jireh. And it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And this is the closing of the loop of that promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed by you or in you. So this is what happens. God tells Abraham, you're going to have to sacrifice your son. We don't know what's going on in Abraham's head. Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham expected God to resurrect Isaac. We don't find that out till 2,000 years later, but the writer of Hebrews said God was, uh, Abraham was expecting a resurrection. So Abraham, fully familiar with the idea that a deity would demand you to sacrifice your child, goes up, makes his son carry the wood. He's got a knife, pulls the knife out. He's got Isaac all tied up, pulls the knife out. He's about to kill his son, and the angel of the Lord stops him. And it's at this point, as this part of the story unfolds, Abraham realizes Yahweh is not like the other gods. Yahweh is different. All the other gods demand, give me your son. But Yahweh says, I will give you my son. Instead of demanding, he's providing. And Isaac is really a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because just like Isaac, Jesus carried up the cross, the wood that he died on, carried it up a mountain except Jesus actually died on it. Another foreshadowing from the life of Isaac where we see Jesus is they both have miraculous births from women who couldn't have children. Why couldn't Sarah have children? She was well past menopause. She was unable to have children. Why couldn't Mary have children? She was a virgin. So the miraculous events around the birth of Jesus and the birth of Isaac is this foreshadowing from Isaac. In fact, that's the reason that Ishmael could not be the fulfillment of the promise because Ishmael's birth was not miraculous and it wouldn't foreshadow the miraculous birth of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because Ishmael's birth was them taking matters into their own hand. There was nothing supernatural about it, right? It was very natural. Happens all the time, actually. But there was something miraculous about Isaac's birth and just like there's something miraculous about Jesus. And look how Isaac's described, your only son whom you love. 
What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? I mean, this whole thing is a 2,000-year hint about Jesus. Jesus is not only foreshadowed through Isaac, Jesus is foreshadowed through that ram. Isaac is about to die, and what happens at the last second? God provides another sacrifice, a substitute. Now, you can't mix the metaphors. We've got to be done with the Isaac metaphor, okay? And now we pick up the ram metaphor. At the last second, God provides a substitute. Who is our substitute? Jesus. Jesus is our ram that God provided who would die on our behalf so that we could live. Not only does Isaac foreshadow Jesus, not only does the ram foreshadow Jesus, who is this angel of the Lord that keeps showing up in the Bible? We're going to dedicate a whole sermon to this in a couple weeks. Look at what the angel of the Lord says in verse 12. Uh, he says, Don't stretch your hand out against Isaac and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This angel of the Lord is talking like he's God or something. And the word angel in the Bible just means messenger. So there's this messenger sent from God who talks like he is God. Well, that foreshadows Jesus as well. And we're going to look at, in a couple weeks, we'll look at these stories where the angel of the Lord appears, and it really seems like the angel of the Lord is foreshadowing Jesus. So this whole story foreshadows Jesus. Now, this story is meaningful and significant to Christians, Jews, and Muslims. All three faiths find their roots in this story, but all three of them interpret the circumstances of the story differently. Did you know that this story is included in the Quran? It's a little different version, but this story of Abraham and Ishmael, and even the Quran mentions Isaac, and the Quran has a story where uh, Abraham takes his son up on the, uh, on the uh, mountain is a, and is about to kill him. And the passage in the Quran, it doesn't say if it's Isaac or Ishmael, but Muslims believe it's Ishmael. But here we say it's Isaac. So we have a, we've split here on who we're talking about. So Muslims, uh, did I lose my sound? I'm good on batter. Oh, here we go. I'm back on for some. Okay. So Muslims will interpret this passage that Ishmael was the fulfillment. And do you know who was a descendant of Ishmael? Muhammad. So the way they interpret it is, yeah, this God, Allah, not Yahweh, Allah promised to Abraham that he would have a son. Ishmael is that son, and his descendant was Muhammad. And that's the way they understand it. Jewish people understand it this way. Very similar to how we understand it, except for the foreshadowing of Jesus. They understand it as Yahweh promised to Abraham a son. That son was Isaac. And Isaac's son, Jacob, is Israel. And that's how Jewish people understand it. The way Christians understand it is Yahweh promised a son to Abraham. That son of promise was Isaac. And Isaac, through Jacob, foreshadows, ultimately, Jesus, that Jesus is the means by which God provides this family, 
this spiritual family, which is why Jesus said everyone who follows Yahweh is called a child of Abraham. You and me even, children of Abraham. It's not genetic. It's not uh, a racial thing or an ethnic thing. It's actually we are the spiritual children of Abraham. Jesus said to a bunch of Jewish Pharisees, Abraham's not your father. If he was, you would act like him. Jesus, he is just always in people's faces with things. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it says explicitly that Isaac was a type. The word type means a, uh, a picture. In fact, the Greek word is parabole, or the word we get parable from. It says Isaac is essentially a parable for Jesus. It's, a, it's a, an allegory or a metaphor or a story that's illustrating Jesus. Now, this is what Abraham learns here, and this is why, this is why I brought up the Muslim-Jewish-Christian understanding here. Many people will think, many people believe that, um, oh, if this story is in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, and the Quran, oh, look, they're all worshiping the same God. The whole purpose of this story is God distinguishing himself from other gods. Not saying we're the same, but actually saying we're totally different. And Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all make some exclusive claims, and they can't all be right. In fact, not only exclusive claims is the polite way to say it. The three faiths contradict one another at some point. And some, one's right and the other two are wrong. I'll let, you know, it's obvious which I think is right. Okay? I'll just say it, Christianity, just so no one leaves confused about that. Which one interprets this story correctly? I believe biblical Christianity is the one that interprets this correctly. Here's what Abraham walks away from this story understanding. Yahweh is not like Molech. Yahweh is not like all the other gods. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is a provider. Yahweh uh, doesn't demand my firstborn. But Yahweh, at the last minute, stopped this from happening. And in that, I think sometimes God will take us right to the brink just to, just to show us something. Just to show us something about us and just to show us something about him. He'll take us right to the edge. I don't, why is it that God, when you, need, when you need money, why does God always wait till the day the bills do? You know, like, why, why, why does he always do that? You know, like, uh, sorry for raising my voice, uh, but it's like he always just waits till the brink, you know, because he's trying to stir up all the junk that's in us. Let's get this all out to the surface and see what you really believe. And he's also showing us something about him. And I think in this story, primarily what he's showing is that he's good. So Abraham would have been familiar or would have grown up thinking, all the nations have their own gods. All the peoples have their own gods. There's a god of war. There's a god of crops. There's a god of fertility. There's this. There's that. And when you cross from one people's property to another people's property, you have to honor their god. This is what Abraham's learning about Yahweh. 
Yahweh's everywhere and Yahweh's everything. He's the God that provides. He's also the God that heals. He's also the God that saves. He's the God that cares. I don't have to go to a whole group of pantheon of patron deities and patron gods. I just pray to the same Yahweh for everything. And when I go to this property, Yahweh is there. And when I go to this property, Yahweh is there. I don't have to switch my allegiance to gods. So this is a significant story in the Bible, and it foreshadows Jesus, and it shows us that Yahweh is good. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. We're going to close with a song that sings through some of the characteristics of Yahweh sings through some of the characteristics of God. If, if that f- term Yahweh is like tripping you up a little bit, that's God's name. God is a title, Yahweh is his name. Does that make sense? Just like mom or dad are titles, but your mom and dad have names. I remember, like, my kids are still figuring out that I actually have a name. Aiden called me bro yesterday. I said, I'm not bro. I'm dad or Reverend James B. Rudd to you and uh and emma can't say reverend james b rudd she said regery big run which she's almost seven she should be able to say that but god is his title yahweh is his name and all through the bible from genesis to revelation he's showing us what he's like and this story shows us that he's good and he's not like all the other gods He's the only one that's everywhere. He's the only one that has all the powers. And he's the only one that provides the sacrifice for us instead of take, take, take all the time. So, Jesus, we thank you for being Yahweh in the flesh, in human form. We bless you, Jesus. As we sing, Lord, I pray that these characteristics of you would really sink in for us and that we would know these to be true not just in our mind but also in our hearts and i pray that in the name of jesus amen thank you for listening to true vine sermon of the week this podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com